You're listening to the Plus Music Podcast with Brian and Nick, where we sit down with artists, founders, video game music composers, and discuss early ideas, challenging hurdles, and how the ever-changing music industry will evolve in the digital age. Today we're sitting down with music communicator and former chief economist at Spotify, Will Page. Will joins us from Austin, Texas' South by Southwest Music Conference and talks to us about his time at Spotify and how he helped redefine their catalog and articulate the global value of music copyrights. His published articles about Radiohead's In Rainbows album and the value of digital downloads. He's a prolific public speaker. We can't wait to hear more. Here's more from Will now. Very grateful to be here on St. Patrick's Day. Um, so. I know. I didn't even think about that. And none of us are wearing green. Uh, a big Scottish, Scottish Gaelic best wishes to my Irish Gaelic counterparts. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, okay. very cool. Where do we um, where do we start here, Nick? I mean, Spotify, that's a worldwide name. Um, how did you get involved there? And um, I'd love to know how your career evolved there and um, what you saw from the beginning of your time there all the way to the end of your time there. Well, I'll jump to the end, but not just the end of Spotify, but the end of my book, the book Tarzan Economics. The last words of that book say, don't wait for your job description, create your job description. Mm. That's essentially what I've done since I entered the music business. You know, when I moved from Edinburgh, my hometown, uh, a small town called Dunbar, south of Edinburgh, very few people know it, but you might know one of our sons that came from that town, a chap called John Muir who gave America mm, some. I do know John Muir. <laughs> when you go to California, he's a god. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, when, I, when, I, when I left Scotland for London, you know, I, was, I, I didn't see a job advert saying, your music industry needs an economist. I saw a business that was falling off a cliff and felt that economics could help repair it. And I wanted to be the first kid on the block to do just that. So I created my job description to get into the business. And that brought me to the PRS to understand songwriters and publishers and collective licensing and then with spotify same thing there was no job advert mm-hmm. saying we're hiring an economist i i've known daniel x since he had hair i go way back to 2007 with the company and by the 2012 the olympic summer in london was the time where it felt right that i could jump ship and go from the rights holder side to the rights user side and i think for this conversation that's i want to bring that balance out of having both perspectives in the debate. A lot of the discussions here at South by Southwest have been very one-sided, and I think we have to strike a balance when we're trying to figure this business out. So yeah, and, then, and I want to stress for your listeners as well, like education is first and foremost in my mind. And one of the biggest things I did at Spotify was on the education front, be it designing the induction program for all new hires, so they would learn about the business they've come to work in, or even, you know, explaining to potential investors on the big funding rounds, this is a business that you're investing in. And I really am passionate about teaching. I think I'm inspired by a lyric which goes, get the message across without crossing over from a rap band called the Jungle Brothers. And that for me is a role of an economist at Spotify, at the PRS, and my current work is how do you keep getting that message across without crossing over? Let me ask you a question Mm -hmm. about about performance rights organizations. Um, Look, I think they do a lot of good Mm-hmm. But I think they do a lot of bad for mm-hmm. progress. I think it's 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 tough to for the industry from what I've seen, and I'm just taking a neutral stance, not so neutral, um, of PROs were part or you know performance rights thinking came from a time that we do not live in anymore. So how do we think about 
performance rights, rewarding the creators, but allowing music to get into places that it should be, that would be net more beneficial to the creator and the people that are going to use it and the ones that are making these, these experiences. What are your thoughts there? I'll pack it with a comment that Beth Matthews, the chief executive of ASCAT made. Um, I remember explaining to her some of my issues with the way that collecting societies work. And they are tricky beasts. They don't fit any MBA textbook. You get under the hood of a collective rights organization. I once called them the last bastion of communism. And it's kind of weird. Like there's not many national monopolies left in the world. PROs, apart from America, where you have competition, but Piero is on, she described ASCAP as a hundred year old startup. And that's a good way to get it because it has legacy systems. It has a strange form of governance. It has a not-for-profit motive. It has heavy regulation. So it's not to be compared with a startup or a typical corporate organization. That is apples and pears. And that doesn't get us anywhere. But you do have to remember the role that they provide. Now, I get the argument that in an age of data, metadata, do we need these things anymore? But the pendulum can swing the other way, which is the more fragmentation there is in the market. You know, I announced today that streaming services are now injecting 80,000 songs every single day. So it's 80,000 ISRC codes for the artist, ISWC codes for the songwriter are being ingested. When you have more fragmentation, I think you need more collective solutions. And the value of the blanket license is crucial. And you've got to remind ourselves that if you look at the label side, they went from boom to bust in the first 10 years of digital disruption. And now that bust has come back to boom again, which we'll learn about on Tuesday next week when we learn what's happened to the global value of recorded music. Through that entire period, ASCAP and BMI and PRS have only ever reported record collections. So if they're a failure, they're a record-breaking record collections failure. And that's that needs to be given balance as well. So I know the warts better than anyone. I've looped under the hood. I've seen it. But we have to remind ourselves of the benefit. If I can just wrap this one up with just well, an example I draw from my book. It's just a very, very quick example. It sounds a little bit of a digression, but I, I raised the question of gridlock. If you didn't have these organizations, what would you have? You'd have gridlock. You wouldn't be able to clear your rights. Very quickly, 1400s, 1500s, the River Rhine, which cuts its way through Europe. We'd have castle barons on the banks of the Rhine. And if you built a castle, you could impose a toll on the Rhine and charge boats passing the Rhine to pass through. Everyone built castles, everyone imposed tolls, and shipping on the Rhine became impractical. Solution, have one big F-off toll at the top of the Rhine and distribute the money backstage. Shipping became practical. So you got to remember... The counterfactual, I know there's warts, but if you took this function away from the music industry, start to contemplate what would enter. Well, yeah, so the, you make a great point. Like they do serve a purpose. I 100% I agree. But, they're, but because they were designed to serve a purpose that does that is one purpose and they're not keeping up with new purposes, right? What it's really doing is holding the industry back. It's a persuasive point, but I would push back and say, how do you build something in its place? Now, where you can get into this, I think in terms of constructively saying where they've missed the point, missed a, missed a trick essentially is, 
I believe that these PROs should have collaborated on a global repertoire database in 2004 when iTunes rolled out. It is now 2022, a lot of years have passed and we are still no further at having a global repertoire database. We still have national copyright databases which don't even communicate with each other efficiently. Yeah, it's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. There's a system which is the way that the collecting studies sort of communicate with each other. So if your song was performed in Italy, you're trusting the Italian collecting study, which, by the way, put their entire pension fund in Lehman Brothers. <laughs> nice move. You're, you're using this organization to plug into a database to connect with your ASCAP database so that $30,000 comes from Italy to your bank account potentially months, years after the event, we can get into the time it takes to get money out in a second. That was a topic of our panel. The point I want to leave your listeners with is think about this system to which they work as your old telephone operator switchboards. It's not that different. It's crazy. It's so crazy. Well, like you bring up, like you bring up these, like, okay, let's go. Let's go down this road. Cause like in order for music, like, here's here's a difference right because like let's just take two industries and let's these are the ones that me and brian are, are we spend a lot of our time in gaming and music music industry total and i think i'm over inflating the re- revenue but i think it's somewhere around 56 billion dollars globally right gaming industry probably more but 160 billion Gap's a bit wider. The simple way of doing that, very quickly, you can say that music does in a year what gaming does in a month. That would be an accurate statement. So, so there's, yeah, three times as big, right? Any, any way you want to cut it. Let's look at, let's look at that. And then if you want to analyze like the, so the, the, the gaming was, has always been and is it's always been technology driven right it's literally been technology driven from the beginning um out when they when it went away from a board game to a video game it became technology based right and so they were you know cloud computing all that stuff started happening much faster but those two industries are just not talking and they don't get a talk and the music industry doesn't get a talk to many of them because they have their way of doing things and it's really complicated right um could there be a world where the pros say we only go this far with this is our could they just eventually just say hey we know what we're not good at we're not going to go do these other things let's set up a separate organization that does that and you know then that new organization can be today 2022 and beyond from a technology point of view i know i'm i'm idealizing this thing but if if there was a world where the pros just had a kind of like okay we're not real good at the next generation of technologies starting in 2006 we're just going to just stop at like record collection we're going to stop at all those things would that be a solve or would there or is there just a a unifier because it doesn't seem like they're ever going to unify yeah, it's, it's, so I hear you uh, loud and clear, um, but that might create more problems than it solves. Um, the idea of having competition with PROs in America is an absurd concept in Europe. The fact you've got more than one, 
BMI, which is owned by the radio broadcasters, to demand rates for songwriters? How can the paymaster run a collective wage bargain? Only in America, only in America could that happen. So you're actually asking for more monopolies. <laughs> Using monopoly in the plural is an, an oxymoron, but we're asking for more monopoly collective rights bodies as well. But we've got to be a little bit careful here about tarnishing Piero's with the same bad brush. There's good, there's bad, there's ugly. And you cited up some bad signs. I can go worse. I can say up ugly ones. S guy, S guy, my Spanish mother-in-law tells me that Spanish collecting study is more hated than Franco. And that's not good for popularity stakes. Yeah, so by the way, I'm taking a pretty, I'm taking a, you know, an incendiary stance on purpose, right? To just for conversation, but, but yeah. Yeah. This is really important, which is if you look at the Danish collecting study as an example, CODA, K-O-D-A, you know they're the only collecting study in the world, and there's 93 of these rare beasts. They're the only one which purposely calls rights users customers. Isn't that fascinating? Hmm. Not the enemy, not the monopoly. They call rights users customers, and they treat them like customers, and they achieve the highest tariffs of anywhere in the world. And that tells you and your listeners a lot about taking a different approach to licensing um, than other societies that you've perhaps alluded to already in your, your spiel. So there's good, there's bad, there's ugly in this world. And we've got to catch on to what works and ask, is that transferable? That's how you move forward. That's how you make tomorrow better than today. Could you, could you, could you see a world where next generation of musicians, they are like, well, you know what we would rather have more opportunity, more money, and more more access to new technologies and places, we're just going to not join any of these PROs. We're just going to, we're going to not join them so that they don't have access to our music. Could you see a world where that happens? Yeah, I mean, I can build a case for that. But before I do, I want to do the caveat. So the caveat is, in the UK, there is a rule called Section 7F, I believe, where you can cherry pick rights that you want to take out of a collecting society. It came from the U2 dispute in the 1990s, if I get the dates right. Um, U2 asked, why are you collecting all the money that we perform from our shows when we write and perform our own music? Hold on to it for two and a half years, deduct God knows how much commission, then send it back to us. Yeah. Hey, can we get that money directly? Classic That's my question. I have the same question as Bono. Uh, and what's the difference between God and Bono? God doesn't think he's Bono. Right, so, you know, that was the Monopolist and Mergers Commission challenge, which led to potentially the PRS being dissolved. You know, they investigated the organization, said it was so corrupt and broken, said, here's 126 things you have to do or die. And they carried them out and went through painful reforms and became a lot more efficient. Not efficient by tech standards, but a lot more efficient relative to other PROs. So there's ways of making these things an improvement. The key thing here is if you were to extract certain rights out of the collecting society, there is an argument. So let's say you take, I'm taking my digital rights out because I want to license my gaming performing right directly. I get where you're coming from. The collecting society could say to you, well, screw you. I ain't going to collect from hairdressers and hotels for you which could be a ton of money coming in as well. So you just have this cherry picking debate of, are you allowed to pick and choose what goes in and what stays out? Yeah, but, yeah. okay. So just for sake of so for sake of argument there, it's like, that's kind of like saying, um, 
hey, look, you know, you're you're cutting my front lawn really great. Thank you. But my my back lawn, you still don't do it. You're not cutting my back. So can I'm going to get somebody else to do my back lawn. Well, I'm not going to cut your front lawn now, but you're not doing my back lawn. It's an all or nothing bargain. And when you're dealing with a monopoly, I don't want to raise the word antitrust in this podcast. Antitrust. Antitrust. But, right. So that does raise issues of is the monopoly abusing its dominance with an all or nothing bargain? That's that's the case again. So that's to push back on you. But when I moved into the business in 2006, I remember that BMI had a controlling stake in the app Shazam. And I was asking myself, why doesn't every retail establishment in the country have a Shazam app, which gives you beautiful line by line reporting for all the music being used in public performance up and down the country? It would be easy. Instead, we have you know, a handful of students with clipboards going into shops to write with a pen and pencil and paper what songs are being played. You know, trying to get to the manager after a show to get the log sheets. Managers don't want to report log sheets after a show. They want to find where the cocaine dealer is. They're not going to give you those log sheets. And so to kind of give your argument impetus, I think there would be an example of if you don't embrace a simple technological solution like Suzanne, we go on strike. Because at the moment, speaking as a Brit here in America, you have taxation without representation. And I know from history, that policy doesn't stand us in good stead. But I think why in 2006 could see PROs use Shazam? Why in 2022 are we still using students with clipboards to get log sheets? I think in terms of that- That's so crazy, don't you think? Yeah. I, I actually remember that in years of touring, sitting before the show with our tour manager, and having him say, what's the set tonight? Let's log it so we could send it into BMI ASCAP after the show. And you're, you're right. It was a pain, yeah. pain. In the I butt, used to do you know? that and I'd get paid. So here's what's cool about BMI. But again, we're talking about the old industry. This is touring. This is. I know. We're so still way down the road. Performance. So performance rights, right? Like. Okay, so what was, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the, the origin of performance rights. So performance rights organizations were started or the ability for like people to collect on behalf of the artists is because people would set up an, a group and they would play and perform songs written by other people at public venues. And so they would have to pay for that right to do that, right? And so that was, am I wrong? That's the, kind of the origin of it? You are where we're on a go wrong there. We need some clarity on this one. Let's do it. 1849, Paris. A French composer called Bourget is at a restaurant. And he realizes that the cost of his salted glass of water is going to be more expensive because there's a band playing. He says, why am I paying more for this glass of water? A very expensive glass of water, as it turned out, because there's a band playing. He says, because we have to pay the band. Bourget asked the restaurant, well, what about the songwriters? Because they're playing my music. The restaurant says, they're the least of my worries. I need to pay the band. Bourget goes to court to fight for the case and loses, then goes to the court of appeal and wins and establishes the performing right. They very quickly, him and 12 other French composers formed an organization called SESM 
because it would be far more practical if one body went around Paris licensing restaurants for the performing right than 12 composers. And that is the birth of collecting rights management. So close, saying, got it, not, so close, but not. I'm not saying the metadata has improved since, but that is where it began. <laughs> I was just going to say, we're doing it the same way that they did in 1849, France. That's well, okay. So, Will, I, I feel like we see the world the same way, but you know a lot of, of the details. It's just pretty cool. So, what, what, like, if you were just off the cuff, say, what's the solution to this, to this issue of, of how performing rights and, and, and digital rights and, and, and sort of like the future of our lives, what, what do you think is the, what's the solve here? Um, I believe that you need a global repertoire database and an Uber. I'm not asking for 93 monopolies. I'm asking for one. I want an Uber monopoly at the top and I want incentives to make that monopoly efficient. So to reiterate, the global repertoire database, it is insane that in 2022, record labels come up to a streaming service with tangible things, ISRC files, meticulous in their preparation, and an invoice. Whereas publishers come to a streaming service with an invoice, and that's it. What do you own? Not telling. What's your market share? Not telling. How, how do we pay you if there's no place where we can work out what it is you're bringing to the table. Could and by you, the way, for investors listening, this is a crucial thing if you buy a catalog, how many months slash years does it take before all that data migrates to your acquisition? This is a taboo topic. So I think that's one example of a global registry, a global repertoire database. Secondly, the Uber monopoly. You think monopolies are bad? I want an even bigger one, which is to quote James Brown, super bad. Now, there is precedent for this in Brazil, and it's a paper that I'll cite and you can put it into your program notes. I published called ECADonomics. You have the Brazilian ECAD model set up by the military government in the 1970s, who weren't the most nicest left-wing progressive people at the time. And it means that if you're a radio station or a record label, you need to have one lunch, not two, to pay all of your copyright. And that's incredible. So they represent the rights for all rights, not just some of them. And it's not that dissimilar if you go back to European history of creating European single currency. If you were to drive from Paris to Dusseldorf in 1999, you'd have four currency zones that you had to pass through. That's nuts. How do you fill up your tank with gas, as you call it in America? Now you have the euro, you have just one. So I think there is an argument for creating a super monopoly structure that just makes the process of clearing the cost of copyright, of administering the cost of copyright, more efficient. Incentives, last point on incentives. You're thinking this dude wants to build a bigger monopoly than the ones we have at present. Is he mad? Is he on drugs? Well, I'm in Austin, Texas, so, you know, give me some creates. But incentives are interesting. And I want to give you a very quick example of incentives. When I was at the PRS, the MCPS, the Mechanical Copyright Protection Society, was on its knees dying. CD sales were falling, downloads weren't plugging the gap. There was fewer and fewer mechanical royalties to process. There was less and less commission to justify it. And they put a job advert up, and the job advert had six full-time roles to uh, clear their black box. And I said, that's crazy. This business is dying, and you're hiring headcount. How can you justify that? And they said to me, 
we don't get paid until we've identified who owns a song and we can distribute the money because the only revenues we see is a commission based on distribution. That's a genius incentive to add to the mix that keeps the organization clean and efficient. In America, you have the opposite. You have class action lawsuits and all the CRB pantomime, but just a simple nuanced incentive to keep the machine efficient. I think there's hope there. I, I want to bring you back into the middle of the door. Screwed is what you're saying. <laughs> well, I, so would no, you no, see no, then no, looking no. even more forward? Would you see blockchain being a solution that no. could no. take care no. of all the no? no. In the short, curve. how do you really feel about that? Well, one <laughs> pen, no, no, no. And here's why: I've had. A million gazillion people come up to me and say, blockchain is the future of the music industry. I think it's garbage. Blockchain works when disputes are low. That's when you can have an effective blockchain infrastructure for finance. It cannot work when disputes are high. And I'm sorry to you guys, because this hits the pain point you guys, but due to the shoddy metadata in the music industry, disputes in our business are sky high. Therefore, any hopes of blockchain solving this problem deserve to go into that trash can in the corner of my hotel room. It doesn't work. Well, well, yeah. So look, you're right, but you're also, we're also in the conversation of, is there technologies that could solve solutions? Like, you know, the, the, this, this sort of like global performance rights organizations also a pie in the sky kind of concept. It could work if people got behind it. Right. Um, well, but to use the, the festive expression, Turkey's waiting for Christmas, well, why would monopolies advocate their own death? Well, here's a way to look at, um, look, I'm not a blockchain expert, but I do know that I do, I do understand that. And I am excited about for the, for, for transactions in the music industry to have a smart contract because a lot of that pre-negotiation can happen. Right, what you what's used for, where it could be used, by whom, those types of things can be sort of pre-negotiated and predetermined with computers, essentially, right? Especially with um, new acts going forward, not so much old. Yeah, so you know, look, just like musicians had to sort of decide to be a social media star or not, like that's the future of music. You're an entertainer. Where are people being entertained? You need to be entertaining where they are, right? Or you're an artist and you're just making art to be an art and it'll either be successful or it won't, it's just kind of a you know gamble. But if you wanna be an entertainer, you need to be an entertainer where people are, right? Because otherwise you're not entertaining anybody. Um, on, on the, so when blockchain, it's everybody talks about it as like it's one big chain. It's not. There's no big one big chain that could be unified. It's, it's lots of blockchains. They're all different. They all do different things. But the idea of a smart contract has some validity, I think, in some future because it is a little bit more of, you know, like it's not too different than a good DocuSign and some good legal, right? Like it's all still going to be based in the, in the, in the, in the the reality of music law, which is pretty, it's of any industry, like I'd say the music industry has built a lot of case law, right? But I think that from from an ease of transaction, the, the that technology brings something to the table, would you agree? 
smart contracts, yes. Um, I like your reference to DocuSign. I remember when Spotify had to negotiate with Gamer, the German collecting society, they wanted us to use a fax machine. We didn't have one. So hoping that they can adopt DocuSign before 2030 could be wishful thinking, but we'll get there. Um, but yeah, smart contracts. And I think you can build something into this if you look at the model that Cobalt has. K-O-B-A-L-T is a, a modern progressive publisher changing the principal agent arrangement to apply that economic concept. They yeah, just right. sold part of their company though, right? Right, but let's just have a look at the economics of it, which is rather than me dangle a check in front of you called in advance and acquire your intellectual property for 70 years after your death, how about there's no advance, it's a service model, you retain ownership and you opt into the services you need. So if you want my sync licensing team to go and place your songs on TV and film, here's a commission rate. But if you don't, go do it yourself. It's no all or nothing bargain. And I think that's a way you can get away from pie in the sky thinking to down on the street level, could something like this develop? And I think it's not just a site COBOL. I don't want to pick winners on this podcast, but their impact on publishing is the spillover impact of watching how legacy publishers have had to up their game and offer dashboards and faster payments and so on and so on as well. So I think there's hope in terms of smart contracts. I think you can get you can get off the 20 yard line with that one. I think we can too. And, and here's where the opportunity that I think the, the world of music needs to be really thinking about is, um, look, we've, okay. So there, there's a way to look at next generation experiences we're about to step into a world where everybody is a creator of experiences for digital spaces. Like if you look at Roblox, Roblox is a creator universe, right? It's here's the tools to make things. It can be simple or it can be complex. I'm not saying Roblox is the answer. I'm just saying it's one of the things that's happening now. Um, and I would assume that you, we were all going to be architects of our experience in the, in, the, in the future. And the next generation of people are going to architect their digital lives. And everyone's going to want a soundtrack. It's an audio-visual experience. So how do you make the audio part of it ready and you know, sort of flexible and usable in that world. Well, it's all got to be pre, pre-negotiated, essentially, right? It doesn't mean that one experience is worth more or less. Like those, there can be a, the whole spectrum in there. People just need to know what they're doing. Like if I don't, like if you want to make an experience right now, if you're a game creator, what you don't want to need to do is go figure out the music business. You want to know how to be the best game creator possible and you're going to want a soundtrack. And the music industry is missing out on that opportunity entirely because they say, I don't have any interest in talk. That's like, it's like putting your hand in a blender and they're like, nah, not going to do that. I'm just going to get this musician I know to make the music. I'm going to own all of it. It's mine. And, and, it, and then those two worlds, they have this giant wall that's unnecessary, right? And I know I'm not convincing you and I'm not, we're not here to have the conversation of like, but I'm, I'm bringing this up because it's a, this is what our company stands for, but it's also like really pushing, you know, into that space of 
how do we how do we put these worlds together you know I want to give you a parable to build out on your point. I mentioned earlier, gaming is doing in a month what the music industry can do in a year. And the stakes are so much higher. And to your point, gaming looks at engagement, 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 and the money follows. Music looks at money, 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 and the engagement is fading. Time spent with music is going down. It's hidden. Nobody wants to discuss right now. So we have that. But your, your point has a younger cousin, not nearly as valuable, but the same predicament. Let's just yak, to use that American expression, yak for a second on podcasts. Now, at the margin, if I choose to listen to your podcast as opposed to your co-presenter's latest song, I'm opting to allocate 40 minutes of my time instead of four. So I always stress, base one, before you pass go, before you collect 200 pounds, frame it in an attention economy. And podcasts are winning attention, so you have to ask who's losing. And to this day, you want to do a podcast about your favorite band, ACDC, NXS, whoever, you still can't put those NXS songs into a podcast. Just like in gaming, I want to do something cool with music in gaming, you still can't put that music into games because of the licensing labyrinth you're about to enter, or you're going to put that part of your human anatomy in a blender, as you mentioned earlier. So we have that challenge, but then wait a second, you can take a horse to water, a water to the horse. And we have to reframe and to the credit of your podcast, which I've been listening to previous episodes, how do we take our business into their ethos? Because if you don't, the people who win, and I'm not picking sides here, is the library music publishers. Epidemic Sounds loves this quagmire because they scale up and that's good. They do a great job as does the, I'm not going to dislike music publishing, but it does result in a kind of market failure, which is we could have achieved so much more having a future of podcasts, a future of audio content being driven by library music. I don't want that future. Nobody want, wants that uh, future. Exactly. Nobody wants fake music. Yeah. <laughs> the killer, not the filler, to quote the killers in the house mm-hmm. today. But that's crucial is, you know, you, the role of an economist in the music industry is to hammer home the counterfactual. If you don't pull your finger out of your bahuki, you're giving it to the library music publishers to take this forward. And that's not, for me, an optimal future vision for this business. Yeah, I think that the, you know, the thing that needs to happen is look at what you're, look at what we've done. Here is the data. Like, just like you said, bring the water to the horse. You got to bring, hey, look, this is what you're missing out on. This is the opportunity. Let's work together. Let's figure it out. Unfortunately, um, it's it's still not like that. You know, I was talking to, um, I, you know, in Riot Games, who, who's, who's very interested in music, loves music, wants people to win. They, the deals that they make, they think they, they try to do fair deals, right? When they go talk, you know, so like, so that I'm hearing from different voices in the gaming industry, which is like, we go to the music industry and we try to like work with them as peer and they just don't treat, they don't treat it's It's just so one, one directional, you know, to the music industry. So they just do other things, you know, and, and that's, that's just such a, it's such a, you know, who really loses is the creators. The creators lose. The musicians that could have had a middle-class living, that could be artists and have 
part of be part of the opportunity. And it's still, hey, you still got to be great. You still got to make great music. It's still got to fit. But the opportunity could be there. It's just not right. And and that's the that's like that's kind of the the rally call, you know, for for next generation companies that that are building those opportunities. I'm feeling it. Uh, I don't want to get into an echo chamber of groupthink here, but I am feeling it. I, I want to add a couple of things here. Um, firstly, there is hope. I mean, one of the most impressive executives in the music industry I've met, and with a Scottish accent, I'm going to fail to pronounce her name, Uana from Warner Music Group. I won't even try and do her surname. But hearing her speak here at South by Southwest, I call her job description trying to turn around a tanker. She's trying to make it quite clear to the business. Our future is over there. Uh, we've got to bring water to the horse. It's not going to work in any way. But she's just one person in a sea full of executives who are thinking about market share next quarter's earnings calls. Yeah, so, it's, it's not going to happen. It's tough, right? I am seeing light at the end of the tunnel, but it is, it is happening. But then Back to that issue of here's just one person and there's just one record label, Warner Music Group. But back to the role of collective rights management, back to what Bourget established in 1849 when he had that glass of water in Paris, is people just want to have one lunch and clear their rights. The convenience is worth more than the copyright. If I can give you one very quick example, the head of licensing at the BBC said at a CZEC conference in Athens, Greece in 2012, and there was public people in the room, so I can say this on record. He said, as it stands, I have to have one lunch with the PRS, songwriters and publishers. You want more, I want less, and I settle up with X million pounds. Then I have to have another lunch with PPL, artists and record labels. You want more, I want less, we haggle, and you set up with Y million pounds. I would happily give you both more money if I only had to have one lunch. It's a very telling story of what are we actually arguing over here. We think it's about the copyright, the creator's works, the rights users. Think simplicity, it's- yeah. Yeah, like if it, it, so to your point, and, and we're going to, we'll wrap up here because it's like kind of a great place to stop, but definitely we need to have you back, Will, and, and we can keep digging in on this. But if I was a, if I was a, for example, a game developer and I just said, all right, I just want to be able to put my game out. That's it. Mm-hmm. Do it. That's why Epic MXM works, right? But again, to the detriment of the war, you know, like you have to sell your music to them, right? Essentially. So um, if I was a creator and I could just say, well, here's what I know my cost to do in business. It's like, if I'm going to do this, my credit card fees are 3%, then you just build around that. But if you, if every day you walk in, it's kind of why blockchain doesn't work right now as a, you know, if you go in and get your your .eth, like I got us a .eth um, account, uh, like URL, it's called, you know, like uh, uh, we have the ETH, ETH's got their own name service, right? Ethereum name service. So ENS. Um, you go in at, at like one o'clock in the afternoon, it's going to be, you know, $500 maybe. You go in at 7 p.m. when the when it's like less traffic, might be 100 so it can be a, this a massive delta of of gas fees. That's that's not that's not sustainable for a business to be grown off of that kind of, you know, not at all. Mm-hmm. And that's what it feels like. People have to deal with the music industry. They just don't know 
what it's going to be, even if they think they've got it right, still, you know, somebody comes out of the woodwork and says, you know, you forgot about me. And so, so that, I think that, you know, I'm really excited to see how this shakes out and, and be, hopefully we can be a part of it, but hopefully all of this collective conversation is going to get things to happen. I mean, I'd love to see like Spotify and Pandora and all the companies like Apple put their money in and create that organization so that it could organize the, the world's like digital rights and get all of it to actually work. You know, that would be interesting. They had to put the money in to create the MLC, which I find hilarious. They had to pay for the public zone solution. But if I go, we we interviewed those guys, the, the MLC. Yeah. I'm sure that was spicy. Now, if I can just sign off as well, just to give you another example, because I think the comparison between gaming, which is worth gazillions, podcasts, which is worth a few million, and the one I'm going to give you, which is worth tuppence worth eight me, is going to be interesting. But in each of these situations, you have an opportunity. You have a train leaving the station, and it's up for the music industry to work out, does it want to join that train? Yeah. Why can't I have a game of top killer music integrated into that gaming experience, licensing? Why can't I do a podcast about European festival performances by the band The Killers and get 60,000 listeners and document the music as part of the story and generate more streams and engagement with that band because of licensing? So just like conscious of your clock here, but just one example from a first-time author with my book, Tars and Economics. When I got the manuscript ready, I remember presenting the manuscript on time to deadline, paid for my own fact checker, very people, very few people get fact checkers these days, copy edited, whole thing ready, and the publisher's going through it. And on the prologue, I quote the lyrics from the rap band, the Jungle Brothers, getting the message across without crossing over. And my publisher, who's not the most emotional chap in the world, screams, what is that? Well, the lyrics that inspired me to work in music way back in the days of puberty. Jungle Brothers, getting the message across without crossing over. These lyrics matter to me. You can't put lyrics in a book. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Have you done licensing? So to show you how bonkers this is, follow me. This is William Douglas Page, former chief of commerce at PRS, attempts to get the license for lyrics in a book. So I track down the publisher, which has a landline, no mobile, no email address. And I say, I want to use this lyrics in a book. Is that cool? The right answer is absolutely. That lyrics will generate interest in the band, which is going to drive streams and will get the upside elsewhere. That wasn't the answer I got. I was given a predicament of three things. Firstly, a contract where I had to state how many books I was going to sell. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a first-time author. It could be three. It could be 300,000. What if I target 30,000? Fine, put 30,000 down. I said, wait a second. If I, put, if I sell 30,001, would I be in copyright infringement? They said, yes. Two, the contract had no line for audiobooks. Angus King read my book on Audible. He did a great job. He read Shuggy Bain. And it's like, we need to get cover for it. I'm not a lawyer, but Audible is going to be a format. Oh, we don't add that to our contracts. So would that be copyright infringement? Yes. Absolutely. Then I said three. Wait a second. I'm asking for, I think, 13 words of a song which had 193 words. Is the fee that you're going to ask me for pro rata allocated across the song? That is, I'm asking for a fraction of all the words that are in the song. Said, no, it's the same whether you want to put all the lyrics in or just a few of them. 
And I just said, you know what, whatever number you're going to ask me for, I can guarantee you I'd have paid you three times that sum just to get the money to the vet. But you're so offensive. This is extortion. I put the phone down. And if you read the introduction to the book, you'll see how I work around the lyrics. And I got a lawyer to make sure I didn't quote them. But that, why is, you know, a million books got released in America last year. They should all be quoting lyrics. It'd be great. They should. You know, it's funny. There's a book that, uh, Mark Andreessen wrote called um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, you know, I've just I've read it in, in every every chapter beginning is starts with a with a, a lyric from uh, his favorite rap. He's also a billionaire and probably paid fines like whatever I'll pay for it. Right. But like but that was something that I've mentioned about that book several times. There's more about that, less about that book that I've actually talked about from the book. Yeah. And I've actually, and I've, I was like, yeah, DMX, like all these like artists that, you know, so it's so crazy how it's like we're can't, they're cannibalizing themselves. They're eating their own, you know, opportunity. It's like the snake eating its own tail. Um, by the way, I just got your book on Audible. Oh, double my sales. You and my mom have done really good. Yeah. Well, it's been great. Talking you know what? I just you, wanted to I just wanted oh. to add real quick before we wrap up. It's interesting because if you would have said thirty thousand is what you're shooting for, and if you went over that, it's copyright infringement. But what if it only did twenty thousand? Would you be able to call them up and say, "Can I get a little bit of a pro rata refund on the ten thousand I didn't sell?" They'd say, "Absolutely not." No. No, we just <laughs> for us. My mission, mission. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, this we'll, has uh, just been great. Well, yeah, we're gonna have to solve the problem together here on another podcast. But um, in the meantime, enjoy uh, the rest of your time in Austin at South by, and uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you so much, man. I love the work you're doing. Keep doing it, man. We need, we need to. We need to bring the horse to water and your podcast is doing a great job at achieving that. We're on it. Amazing. Well, thanks. Well, thanks guys. Cheers.